All right, so before we get into the passage today, I want to bring up a couple things. One, I think Brandon's going to announce this at the end, but I want to bring it up up front really quickly. I know you're not all members here. There's a lot of families here. Um, but next week, we're going to have a members meeting. We actually wanted to do it, the members meeting this week right after church, but it didn't seem fair to the families that are here today. We know you want to go have lunch and hang out with your families afterwards. So we're doing a members meeting next week. The reason I'm bringing it up now, because we've been announcing this, when we originally planned this members meeting, it was just a meeting to get together and talk and talk about what's going on in the church and to ask questions and just be a family. Well, now we have a really big announcement. And so um, I really want to encourage you next week to be at the members meeting. It wasn't originally our intention to have a big announcement, to have something really big to talk through, but we do now. And so I just wanted to make sure up front that you heard it's really important if you can be there next Sunday. We're going to do it right after church. And what we're actually going to do is we're going to have a truncated church service. So we're going to try to get um, church is going to start at 10. We're going to try to be done by about 10.45, 10.50, and then have about an hour and 15, hour, hour and a half um, members meeting. So I just wanted to say that up front so you see, because it's kind of a big deal. I want everybody to be there. All right. Okay. So um, I think most of the families have made it back in. So let's just jump in today. If you haven't been with us, or if you're a family member today, we've been walking through the gospel of John. Um, you can see right here, to know and believe. And John tells us at the end of the gospel in John 20, that this is why he wrote this book, that we would know Jesus and believe in Jesus. And when we say no, it's not just like people that are lost get saved. It's that we would truly know who Jesus is in the depths of our soul, know what he did for us and truly believe all of his promises to, to us. And that's going to be in particularly relevant today because I'm going to go out on a limb and say some of the things that Jesus says today, does today, that not all of us truly let sink deeply into our hearts. We know it up here, but I don't know that we truly live it deeply every single day. And it's the type of passage, it's the type of thing that Jesus says and does that if we really accept can be, can be life-changing for us. But I'll also say that this is a really, really interesting passage. If you grew up in church, around church, and even a lot of church people have heard the, the, of this story before. And so why do you think I say it's interesting? And the ESV, if you have the ESV version of the Bible, it, it says it in there. Um, the reason I say this story is interesting in particular is because it's very, very likely that it was not originally a part of the Gospel of John. Probably not originally a part of the Bible at all. Maybe a part of the Bible somewhere, but almost definitely not originally a part of the Gospel of John. Does that shock anyone? The reason I say it's interesting is for some people, this is one of their favorite stories in all of Scripture. And so um, we have very, very few passages, even verses, in all, of, in all of the Scripture that we're not absolutely confident they were there from the start. I mean, we have Scripture now, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things, that show how unbelievably accurate the Bible is. Like, miraculously accurate. If you look at all other ancient texts, no other ancient texts come even close to as accurate as the Bible has, has proven to be. Like, listen, it's not even close. I mean, 20,000, 30,000 documents more than any other document in the world. But there are a few verses. There are a few passages. When we go back and look at those ancient documents, it looks like they probably weren't there. And so here's what I want to do. I want to I lay out the case for you really quickly of why this probably wasn't in Scripture, just so you, you can know, right? But I also want you to know that that's not all bad news, and I'll tell you why here in a second. But the main reason that we don't think this was originally part of the Bible is because you know all those ancient manuscripts I said that we, we have? None of them, none of the most ancient documents have the story in the Gospel of John. None. That's a pretty good indicator, right? It doesn't show up until about three or 400 years later, 
And then it's only in the Gospel of John sporadically, and it's all over the place in John. It's not always found right here. Sometimes at the beginning, sometimes at the end, sometimes it's right here. So that gives us pretty good confidence that it wasn't originally here. Also, the language in this story, doesn't, and it's the style of the story, the way it's told, doesn't reflect John at, at all either. It doesn't reflect the way that John writes. Not only in the Gospel of John, but John wrote four other books in the New Testament. It doesn't really reflect his style, his use of the Greek, the original language this was written in. Um, and so we can have fairly good confidence just because of those. There's other reasons, but just because of those two, fairly, fairly good confidence that this wasn't originally a part of the Gospel of John. And that's really bad news if you really love this story. But, right, there's a big capital B-U-T right there, but there's also some really good news about the story. I think it's totally okay to trust um, in the things that this story says. And I wanna, I'm going to go as far to say trust that this story really happened. If nothing else, if we don't believe this story really happened, we can absolutely trust and follow the example that it leaves and even Christ's words in this. And here, let me, let me tell you why. Um, the, the first reason and probably the most important reason is that the theology matches the rest of Scripture. I don't think we should use this passage to help define our faith, help define who Jesus Christ is. We don't use this Scripture alone for that. Right? But when you look at the rest of Scripture, um, we have passages that line up with, this, with everything that's said in the Scripture multiple times over through the rest of the Bible. I'm going to read some of those today just to confirm that. Right, So although we don't root our faith in this, it's safe to say that this is very theologically accurate all the way through because we have plenty of other Scripture to back that up. Um, the second reason I think we can trust this story and, and maybe even believe that it happened is because is, although it doesn't match the language and the style of the Gospel of John— it very much matches the style and the language of the other Gospels. Very much so. Mark and Matthew and Luke. Um, Mark in particular. Um, things like, we're going to look at this more in a minute, but things like where it says the scribes and Pharisees came to test or question Jesus, that's never said in the Gospel of John anywhere else, except for right here. But it's said in the other Gospels over and over. The scribes and Pharisees are always coming to test and question Jesus. And that's just one example of how this plays out in the other Gospels. So that helps us to trust this. And then the third reason, and I won't spend a lot of time on this one today because I don't want to get too technical on you guys today, but the third reason I think we can trust it is there was a church father that was actually alive during the time that John was alive. We think John died in about 90 AD. This guy would have been 30 years old in 90 AD. And he, this, this man, this church father, recorded other stories that are just like this story. In fact, he recorded a story of a woman who was caught in multiple sins, and Jesus did the same thing for her. Jesus stood up for her in the same way. And then that story and a few of his other stories have been confirmed by a different, separate historian. Right? So we have, that's, for the ancient times, that's really good confirmation. So we have, we have almost, we don't know for sure, but really good confirmation that stories like this story and other stories just like it were being told about Jesus in the very earliest parts of the church. So that gives us a lot of confidence that if this story didn't happen exactly like this, which I think we can trust that it did, um, it, a story, stories like this that are very, very similar happen. So I, I think it's, it's okay to trust the story. I think it's okay to, to, to believe that this really happened. Okay, so now, let's, now that we got all that out of the way, let's kind of dive back into what I think is one of the most beautiful examples of Christ's love, his mercy, his grace, for those who are undeserving, for those who know they're undeserving, yet Christ seems to love and seems to even call beautiful. Because I think of this story and what it says about Jesus, if we can fully embrace it for ourselves, not only will it change how we view ourselves, 
But I think stories like this one are an incredibly powerful tool to help other people understand who Jesus Christ really is. And so I want you to have that tool. I want you to have confidence in this so that you can use stories like this one to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. With all that being said, let's jump into the passage today. We're going to read 753. I know it looks like the beginning of the passage. It almost looks like 8.1, but we're going to start in 753 and we'll read through 8.6 again. They, meaning the disciples, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Okay, we're going to stop there for a second. So let me kind of get the little, a little bit more of the technical theological side of the story out first. Um, this story over the last 1,500 years, as I mentioned before, has been found in virtually all, all different kinds of places in John. Sometimes at the middle, sometimes at the end, sometimes right here. So when you read this story, don't, we, we've kind of been following a pattern in chapter 6 and 7, like kind of following one story. Right? But don't think this of, of this as in chronological order. Which, by the way, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, John's not all that concerned with chronological order anyway. Right? He kind of follows chronological order, but John is fine with skipping around. He wants to tell the stories of Jesus Christ. Right? So we'll just think of this story as kind of a set-aside story. And so what it, sound, what it sounds like is that the disciples, they came back to Jerusalem, decided to take a break. They went back to their homes. They went to see their families for a little while. And so Jesus decides to go to the temple. And as always, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, where Jesus go, people follow, right? And so he's at the temple, and people start gathering around him, and he sits down to teach them. This is another indication of, we see this all the time in the other Gospels, but never in the Gospel of John. Can we get the first slide? Who's doing slides today? You got it, Robert? I think it's Matthew 5. So Matthew 5, this is from Matthew 5, another Gospel. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then Jesus began to teach them in this passage. We see this all the time. Jesus sits down to teach the crowds. He sits down to teach his disciples. All right, so we see this pattern all the way through. It gives us confidence in this story. And then another very common occurrence in the Gospels is one that I only mentioned, and it's found in the other Gospels, is while G Jesus is teaching, while he's sitting down to teach people or teach his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees show up to test him, to question him constantly right? Constantly to test him. So if you're new to this whole thing, think of the scribes as kind of like expert lawyers. They were like expert lawyers when it came to the law. And then the Pharisees were the religious leaders who were basically the most serious about the law. The kind of people that like looked down on everybody else because they weren't as good at following the rules as they were. I know we've never known Christians like that, but these guys were like that, right? And so you take the scribes and the Pharisees, most of the scribes ended up becoming Pharisees. You wonder why, right? Experts in the law, well, these guys follow the law better than anybody, so they a lot of time join, join forces. These are the people that came to test, to question Jesus. And again, we don't see this very often in John, actually only here, but here's an example in Luke 5. Luke 5 says this, And when he saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, there, there, there that is, they began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus forgives someone's sin, and the scribes and the Pharisees immediately begin to question him, right? Immediately begin to test what he says, because the, the truth is they're right. 
only God can forgive sins. So they're like, how dare this guy say he can forgive sins? This is a constant thing through all of the gospels. And we see it one time here in John. So it gives us more confidence of the similarities between the other gospels and this story. Now we got that out of the way. Let's get to the point of the story today. I want you to see, I want us all to see just how ugly this moment really is. This is, an, this is a, a truly ugly moment. They drag this woman out in the street because she's committed adultery, but who did they not drag with her? The man. Where's the man in the story? Listen, he's just as guilty as she is. The penalty for him is just the same as he is. So I know it's ancient culture, but at the same time, if they're so committed to the law of God, where's the man along with her that's committed adultery with her? No, they just bring her. And they, and they pretend, as they bring her out, they drag her out in the street, they drag her out to the temple, that this is about justice. But do you notice they don't even really treat her as a person? They're just kind of using her as an example. They're using her as a prop so that they can try to discredit Jesus. This moment, church, is not about fairness. It's not about justice. It's certainly not about compassion. It's about these men, these prideful men, proving that they are right and Jesus Christ is wrong so they can bring them down. That's it. That's what this moment's about. Now, they asked Jesus a question. We're going to get to that question in just a second. But before we do, let's talk about the weird thing of Jesus kneeling down and riding in the dirt. Have you ever thought that was strange? It's the, one of the things that convinces me that this, this story has to has to be absolutely true. Why in the world would we, they record this part of the story? Why would they say this part of the story if it wasn't true? It's just too random just to add it to a story in the Bible when they don't, they don't use that much real estate already in, the, in Scripture. So he leans down, he starts writing in the dirt. Okay, let, let's see who, who's got it here. What did Jesus write in the dirt? Thank you. We don't know. Doesn't that seem obvious? We don't know. Do you know how much debate has gone on and speculation has gone on for the last 2,000 years about what Jesus wrote in the sand? Oh, he wrote this verse, or he wrote this passage in Exodus, or he wrote the law out for them, or he did this. or Like, listen, we don't know what he wrote, but he did, he, he did that. And what we do know is, it, is he was stalling. Not, maybe he wasn't stalling on purpose, but it stalled because we're going to see as we keep reading that they kept asking him the question again and again. They kept pressing him. Jesus, what do we do with her? Jesus, what do we do with her? And Jesus just took his time. I think he took his time just to let them stew in the question, to get them even more frustrated, to reveal their own character as he sat there and waited and thought about what he was going to do. Well, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. So they asked him a question over and over. And what was the question? They said this, this woman is caught in adultery. The law of Moses commands that we stone her. So in the end, they're asking, hey, Jesus, what should we do? Should we stone her? So the first thing we have to understand, if we're going to understand the story, is they were absolutely right about what the law said. The Old Testament law said that they were to stone her, meaning stone her to death. Does that sound harsh? It's okay. It, it's okay to say, yeah, that, that sounds harsh. That sounds like a very stiff penalty. And, and I get that, of course. But I want you to understand, when God first established his law, he wanted us to see that he meant business. He, he meant business. The intention of the law was to reveal to us the absolute holiness of God and the absolute depth of our sin. 
right? Paul talks about that, how the sin actually can kind of cause us, at least our perception, cause us to sin more. Because once we understand how the depth of our sin by looking at the law, we realize how depraved we really are. And so the point of the law was to reveal just how holy God is and just how far away from that we are and how badly we need God and we need his forgiveness and his mercy and for him to grow us because we're not even close without him. And so, yeah, before the time of grace came and Jesus Christ, God wanted to clearly establish who he is and who we are because it makes, us, it, makes it so much more beautiful, so much more clear when the time of Christ comes to understand the depth of God's grace. We cannot understand the depth of God's grace without understanding the magnitude of God's holiness and the depth of our sin, right? But once you understand those two things, when you, when you see what Jesus Christ did for us, it'll blow your mind. It'll change your heart. It'll make you into a new creation. So the intention of the law was to reveal God's holiness. And so by the, the law, a woman who was engaged to a man and committed adultery against him um, was to be stoned to death. So technically, they were right. Technically, that is the law. But here's the thing. All the evidence of first century Jerusalem and the Jews suggests to us that except in the most extreme cases, they didn't do this anymore. It was technically the law, and like they want to stone Jesus later, and they try to stone Paul, so it, it does happen, right? But only in the most extreme cases. So them pulling this woman from, from her house or wherever into the temple and not draw, dragging off the man who did the same thing shows us that this, for them, this is not really about justice anymore, but, but putting Jesus in a situation he can't escape from. They wanted to trap him. So if you didn't catch it, here's the trap. Here's how they want to trap him. The law did say that the penalty for her sin was stoning. So if Jesus said, yeah, the law says to stone her, so, so, so stone her, um, the people would think he was being really harsh. Jesus' ministry was known for loving the broken, loving the lost, loving the sinner, right? Being very compassionate towards them. So if they pull this woman out in the situation, he says, stone her, then he, the people might have been against him. Not that Jesus was worried about that. That's how they think right? Jesus was willing to always do the right thing no matter what, wasn't he? But these men are trying to trap her, right? So they're thinking, hey, if Jesus does this, then we're, we're going to trap him and the people are going to be against him because Jesus is really popular with some people. On the flip side of that, if Jesus says not to stone her, well, Jesus keeps cl claiming he's from the Father and that him and the Father are one and he's sent by the Father. If he says, no, don't stone her, then Jesus is not willing to follow the law or maybe even break the law. So how in the world could he be sent by God if he doesn't follow the law? Do you see what they're doing here? On top of that, the last thing is, are, are Jews at this time allowed to kill people for capital punishment? No. Why? Rome. They're ruled over by Rome right now. Only Roman prefects, only Roman leaders can condemn people to death. The Jews can ask, which is exactly what they do with Jesus later, right? They, they, go, they go to Pontius to try to get Jesus killed, right? But they can't do that. So if Jesus says, hey, stone her, and then she gets stoned, they know that Jesus is probably going to be killed by Rome. See, the, the, these are really smart people. These are really smart guys, and they think they have them. I can just imagine their smug, arrogant faces as they lay her down there and they say these things to Jesus. They think they've got them. I wonder how long they really thought through this before they did it. All of them surrounding him like this, trying to test him. Ever known a person? Ever known a leader? Ever known a church person like this? Have you? A person that seemed to be more concerned with being right, with winning an argument, with proving their point, 
or maybe, hey, listen, protecting their reputation than they ever cared about the person that is hurting standing right in front of them? What devastation church people have done over time for the sake of their pride and self-righteousness? If you talk to people who were a part of the church, maybe pursued Christ for a time and have walked away, especially in our area, how many of those people in their history have a story of a church person that hurt them badly and that's the reason they're not a part of church? I've never heard someone say, well, I just hate Christ and what he stands for, so I'm not a Christian. Has, has, raise your hand. Has anybody ever heard that? I just can't stand Christ. I'm just totally against I hate what Christ stood for, so I can't be a Christian. Not one hand. Can we just think about that for a second? This is not, I'm going to go off. I'm going to go off. This is going to get dangerous. I want you to think about that. Not one person raised their hand to say that Jesus was the problem for anyone. It's church people. I want you to think about that when you get in arguments, especially related to our faith, but just arguments with people. I want you to think about that when you post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever else. I want you to think about that when you take a stand on whatever you take a stand for. Church, we need to take stands sometimes. Yes, amen. But I want you to think about how Scripture calls us to be kind and gentle and patient and compassionate and, yes, full of truth. Yes, full of truth, but the truth in love. Are these men loving their neighbor as their self? No. You can stand up for the law. You can stand up for truth and still love people well. And sometimes standing up for the truth and calling them away from their sin is the most loving thing you can do. But it's church people not following the example of Jesus Christ or what Scripture says that have driven most people away from the church. Men just like these religious leaders who are supposed to be the example to all of Israel. And lastly, I'll only say on that, if that's part of your story, and for a lot of it, for a lot of people it is, I, I mean this, if, if you've never got an apology for that, I know I'm probably not the one that hurt you, but can I just say sorry? If you've been hurt by church people, been hurt by the church, I'm sorry that happened to you. And hear me, it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, and it certainly has nothing to do with his bride, his bride the church. That is a reflection of how deeply we need Jesus because even in church, the church is full of sinful people in need of a physician. So sometimes bad things are going to happen. This is not a place for perfect people who act like they're saints. This is a place for people who need a hospital, who need, who need the great physician. So sometimes bad things happen, and I'm sorry that that, that happened to you. I, I pray that Freshwater will never be that kind of place that drives people away for that reason. All right, now that we kind of got a little bit more of the, the technical, theological side of the story. I want us to think about the humanity of the story for a second. And I think it's hard for us because the story happened 2,000 years ago in first century Jerusalem, and so it's hard to wrap our minds around. So I'm going to do something to make it a little easier for us. I want you to do something for me. I want you to imagine a small town close to here. And it doesn't have to be an actual small town. It could be. But actual, I want you to imagine a small town around here, a town where pretty much everybody claims to be a Christian and where almost everybody goes to church regularly, or at least they go to church on, on Christmas and Easter and for baby dedications, right? I'm looking at some of you. No, I'm just joking. Just joking, joking. Um, it's a town where your parents were Christians, and their parents were Christians, and their parents were Christians, and so on and so forth all the way down the row. A, a town that, that might have some really lovely people, right? Some really great 
godly people, but a town also full of judgmental, hypocritical people pretending to be perfect, pretty church people, but really are just really good at hiding their sin from everybody else. That's the reality. I know we've never known anybody like that, but that's, the, that's this town. People good at hiding their sin. Listen, it's not all that hard for us that grew up in Southwest Missouri to, to picture this kind of small town, is it? It's just, it's just not. Now, even in a super religious town like this, a woman being caught having an affair doesn't really capture the scandal of that culture at the time, right? Because that's kind of something that happens now. But like, this is a huge scandal at that time. So I want to do this. I want, I want you to imagine in this small town, a woman's not just called, caught in adultery. She is committing adultery, but she's, she's also um, acting as a prostitute. Adultery and prostitution. I think that gets us a little closer culturally to the scandal, to the kind of shame this brought. And so in one of these small religious towns, one that's probably not real that you don't know of, but in this small town, can you imagine the scandal and the gossip and all the pretty church people looking down on this woman just in scorn? Can, can you picture that happening? Looking down at her in scorn. I also want you to think a little bit about what it would take for a woman in a town like this, who grew up in a town like this, to get to the point where this is felt like, she felt like this is something that she needed to do. Because we can always put these kind of things off to, oh, it's one of those people. No, they're just people that have been down a certain path, that are in a certain place that they never thought they would be. Do you think this woman ever thought she'd be in this spot? Doesn't make her less guilty, but she's also a person. She's not her sin, but that's how people are going to treat her. But it's more than that. In this town, for whatever reason, they've, they've made it legal that the penalty for prostitution is the death penalty. And she knows it. And everybody else knows it. So for whatever drove her here to this point, to this low point, she knows that she's literally not just risking her reputation for the rest of her life and her family's reputation, but she's literally risking her own life. So then she gets caught by the local pastor in the act, the pastor of the prettiest church in town with, on the, with the prettiest people on the outside, but on the inside, as Jesus described some of the religious people in his, time, in his town, on the inside, they were like death. They were pretty on the outside, at so hypocritical, self-righteous, and cold-hearted on the inside. Imagine them dragging this woman out in the street, declaring her sin for everybody to hear. Can you actually picture that happening? not even bothering to drag the man. You know why they didn't drag the man out? Because he was a part of the church. And listen, they're not trying to protect their reputation. They're trying to protect the reputation of Jesus Christ and his church. So they can't bring the man out because it'll just make Jesus Christ look bad, right? But they can the, but they can the woman because she's not a part of their church. So it's, so it's okay. And so in this moment, without, without a thought for the fact that although guilty, she's still a hurting, weeping woman in front of them. They're, they're willingly just displaying her greatest shame for all to see. Now, as tough as you think you are, as tough as we all like to think that we are, or some of us think, oh, I don't care what people think about me, can you imagine what this moment would have felt like? The overwhelming shame, the overwhelming guilt, the condemnation, listen, even fear for her life, fear of death, because her life is at risk. That's what they're talking about whether or not they should kill this woman in front of her like she's not there. And what if it wasn't only that 
But also the only reason they were doing this wasn't for justice, but so they could win an argument with a pastor across town. And she knows it. Everybody knows it. They're just trying to prove a point to a pastor across town to, pr- to prove that they're better than that church. What if you were just a pawn thrown away to satiate someone's pride in the worst moment of your life? In your greatest shame, treated not as a person, but a thing to be used. That's what this moment is. And we wonder why Jesus was so hard on the religious leaders. Church, the woman in John 8, being crushed in this moment by the weight of all of their condemnation and all of their carelessness, by the weight, listen, of her own guilt, because she is guilty, and the fear of her own death, knows what the law says. She knows what the law says. She knows that they're not even technically wrong. So in this moment, with all of these powerful people surrounding her, what hope does she really have? And then Jesus utters one sentence. Just one. Look at it in verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine what that would have been like? In another gospel in Matthew 7, Robert, can we get Matthew 7 up there? In another gospel in Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Judge not that you, not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck, meaning the sin, that is in your brother's eye, in your brother's life, but you do not notice the log, the much bigger sin, that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So is Jesus saying here that we should never judge each other's actions? No. Do you know how many people have quoted this passage, but they just quoted the beginning to say that we we can never judge each other? Judgment always sounds like a bad word, and I know it can be hard, but that's not what Jesus Christ is saying at all. He's saying, how dare you call out someone else's sin when you have your own secret sin that you haven't dealt with before the Lord? Right? He's saying, go deal with your own sin. Take your own sin to the Lord. Repent of that sin. Give that sin. Accept the forgiveness of the Lord. Then you go talk to your brother or sister in Christ to help them walk through their sin. One of the most One of the most loving things we can do is call our brothers and sisters in Christ away from their sin into the holiness of God. Yes and amen. But listen, if you're going and you're coming judgmentally or hypocritically, when you've got tons of stuff going on in your own heart and your own life, but you're calling them out, not in love, but just calling them out, look, you're in trouble. He's saying you're going to be judged in the same way someday. He's talking about at the end. You're going to be judged in the same way. But on the flip side, hey, deal with your own sin. Hey, and then go to your brother or your sister in Christ, and help them walk out of their sin into obedience. Jesus knows the heart of these religious leaders. We see that constantly in Scripture. He knows their hearts. He he knows their hypocrisy. He knows their hardness. So he says something to them in one sentence that would have summed up everything he just said in Matthew 7. If you are without sin, not mean, I don't think Jesus meant if you're perfectly sinless. He said, but if you have dealt with all of your sin before God, then you'd be the first one to throw a stone at her. Then what happens? 
One by one, they all drop their stones and walk away. So, in the end, instead of her shame being put on display, it was theirs. It was theirs as Jesus, the one they tried to trap, says one sentence, and they all walk away in their own shame. And then Jesus says the thing that I hope, I pray, grips all of our hearts. Woman. And this wasn't like woman. This is a, in the Greek, this is a comforting, loving word, woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. By God's own law, this woman is guilty. By his commands, she should be put to death. So when Jesus says what he does, it would, have, it would have just seemed shocking to some. It would have seemed radical to others because it seemed to be contrary to God's law. I mean, he said he's from God the Father, right? And this is his Father's law. So how could Jesus say, they don't condemn you, neither do I, when the, when the law has already done that? The law has already condemned her because she is guilty. So how could this be? How could Jesus say this to her? Well, for one, one do you remember the passage we were in earlier in Luke 5? Jesus has already declared that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins, but it's even more than that. We saw the answer to that, to why we can trust what Jesus says here, because we saw the the answer to that earlier in John 3. Does anybody remember what he said earlier in the gospel in John 3? It said this. Do we have it? I want you to read it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Imagine, church, just try to imagine it. Try to imagine this woman. Try to imagine this moment. This woman, for, for whatever reason, felt like this is what she needed to do. Not only risking her reputation to do it and her family's reputation to do it, but quite literally risking her life. Literally risking her life caught and then dragged in the street for her shame to be bore for everyone to see. And not in the end, not even for justice, not even completely to do what's right, but for for the use of these powerful religious people. A moment so low for her, so quite, so low that she knew it was the end of her life. And then she hears the beautiful, grace-filled words of Christ. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. I can't imagine what that would have felt like to her. I bet some of you can. Her culture condemned her. These men tried to condemn her. The law of God condemned her. But hear me, we saw in John 3, that is not why Christ came. The law takes care of that. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came so that by faith in him, through his life and through his death, the righteous requirement of the law for her sin, for my sin, for your sin could be fulfilled. So that the penalty of breaking that law could be paid. So the shame, the shame that we have all felt, the shame that we all have walked in could be washed away because Jesus bore our shame on that cross. That's what he does. So that by believing in him, Christ could say to all of us who are guilty, and we are all guilty. 
right? That's why we're here, because we're all guilty, not pretty church people. We are all guilty. So Jesus could say to all of us who are weighed down by our shame, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Church, I want you to hear this is not about Jesus or us taking sin lightly. We can never take sin lightly. You know why? Just look at the cost. The most precious thing that has ever existed, the life of God's own son, was given to pay the cost for your sin. The the highest penalty that could possibly be paid. Don't you dare look at the law of God in the Old Testament and look what it took for God to forgive all of our sin and then take your sin lightly and act like it's not a big deal because God has grace for you. No way, Christian, can we do that. If you have sin in your life, consistent, unrepentant sin, you need to take that to the Lord. You need to repent of that. You need, man, if you're not a Christian in here today, hear me. God is against you. He loves you, but because of your sin, there is wrath for you. And Jesus came and he said, come to me, all who are burdened by their sin and by their shame. I'll carry that load for you. I'll bear your shame for you. I'll take that penalty for you because I love you. But you've got to choose to come. You have to believe in faith. That's the call of our Savior. That's the beautiful part of this story. No, we don't take sin lightly because we knew what it costs. But anyone can come. And so I just want to ask today, what's your story? Is yours a story of brokenness and shame? Shame you've done or shame that's been done to you? Is this your story And maybe it's in the past, or maybe it's right now. Maybe you're caught in a cycle of sin right now. If you are in Christ, Jesus is saying to you, if you're in him, he's saying to you, I have not condemned you. I have made you beautiful. I have made you clean. Hear me, I have taken your shame So go, walk in the truth of that and go sin no more. Church, that's how we find freedom. That's how we move forward, right? This is how we truly grow. Not not, not by trying really hard not to be that person of shame anymore. Not by trying really hard to walk away from your shame and and do it really, really well. No, but by realizing Christ has already done away with that person if you're a believer. That person has already been washed away. That person is dead and you have been raised with Christ. So you are free to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You're free to walk in the power of your shame being taken away. All you have to do is actually believe it. Because if you will, then you can move forward. Church, hear me. He is calling you forward. And so many of us get caught in the apathy. We get caught in our shame. We get caught in the same sins and just feel like that's who we are. And it's just the struggle until we don't sin again. When Jesus wants so much more for you, he wants you to believe that he did not come to condemn you, but set you free by saving you now and into eternity so that you can actually move forward past that old person into a person of the spirit. As Romans said, you are not a person of the flesh. You are a person of the spirit. Walk as a person of the spirit. God's desires are already in you. Do you know that? That When you believe that you're still that lustful person or angry person or fearful person or or apathetic person or greedy person or whatever, you're believing a lie from the enemy who's just reminding you of who you were. That's why he's called the accuser. He accuses the saints day day and night. And the the, the truth of the matter is he accuses you with things that you've actually done. You've actually thought. 
He's trying to convince you you're the old person. You are not the old person. You are a person of the Spirit. Walk in that truth, and you will walk into freedom, church. Believe me, I was a slave to my sin, a slave, desperate slave to my sin. And Jesus Christ has set me free. He can set you free too. It does not mean I'm perfect. And God's not, I'm not saying you need to be perfect. We strive for it. It's not about being perfect. It's about understanding. I can lay my sin down. I can lay my shame down and I can move forward in Jesus Christ. So maybe you're a person in the room now that's not consistently walking in your shame all the time, walking in your sin consistently. Little by little, you've walked out of that into freedom and light. And if that's you, praise God for that. Not perfect, but you're moving forward in Jesus Christ. That's worthy of celebration. It's worthy of celebration. I want you to celebrate that in Jesus Christ. But what I want is for you also to be an example because there's so many people caught in the shame cycle and they need you to walk alongside them and show them that that's not who they have to be anymore. That they can take their shame and they can lay it down and they can move forward. Listen, that's my story. That's why one of the reasons I love to, to disciple other men and disciple and preach because I know what God has done for me. I know who I was. And it wasn't by my own power or self-righteousness or goodness that I walked away from those things. It was by the power of Jesus Christ alone. And he can do that for you too. So if this is you, if you've been walking more towards freedom and light, I want you to hear this right now. Right now, in this room, and in your workplaces, and in your families, and across the street in Tom Watkins' neighborhood, there are people buried under their shame. There are people buried under their guilt. And for so many people, condemnation, feeling condemned, has seemingly become a part of who they are. They feel like that's just who they are. What if for people like this, people that that you actually may even care deeply about, what if we didn't try to share the gospel with them, but just simply told them the story of the one who can take away their shame? The one who, who died so he could bear their guilt for them. The one who had his body broken so that their punishment could be taken away, removed from them. That no matter how ugly it is, He can turn their brokenness into beauty. That's the story, Christian, that you have got to believe. That Christ has taken your brokenness and he's already, if you believe, he's already turned it into beauty. You just have to believe it. This is why I say this truth in the story is is life-changing. What if you actually believed it? What if you believe that Christ has done this for you? You truly laid it down at the cross. You confessed it to who you needed to confess to. You confessed it to the Lord. And then you learned to walk forward because this is absolutely true. What if? What if? And what if you were willing to share this unbelievable truth with other people? Not being pretty church people that present the gospel but fellow broken people that share with people, he can take away your shame because he took away mine. And I'd love for you to know what that feels like. I'd love you to experience the love of your Savior, the true love of your Savior, who bore it all on the cross so that you and I could be set free. That'll change the world. That won't push people away from the church, but it'll bring them to us because we are the bride of Christ. There is now no condemnation for you in Christ. Let's go live in 
and proclaim that truth. Pray with me. Oh Lord, how could it be? How could it be true? I know for so many other people in this room like me, I know, I feel that I don't deserve this kind of grace. I know I don't deserve mercy like this. Jesus, thank you so much that you did not make your grace about what we deserve, but about your love and what you are willing to do so that we could be forgiven. Oh God, it's so hard for us to walk in that truth every single day, to believe it's absolutely true and just move forward. And so God, I pray that you would just stir a desire, a truth in people's hearts to walk, to believe, to live in this truth so that they might be set free to who they were meant to be in you and might move forward. And then Lord, I, I also pray for all of us today that, that you would bring us people that you would bring each and every one of us in this room, you would bring us people buried in their shame. And then God, I pray that you would give us the confidence, the courage, the strength for when we see that person, when we hear about their shame, to be willing to open our mouths and speak into it, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how ugly this person can be to us or to others at times, when our time comes, when they're willing to bear their shame to us, that we will speak the truth of who you are, the one who bore our shame to set us free. God, I pray that we can be a church that sees people saved and redeemed and baptized. God, use us for the harvest. We are ready for you. God, prepare us and use us to see this world changed for the sake of your name and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, I'm gonna be back there in the corner and there'll be a couple other people with me. If you need prayer about anything at all, if you need to confess, if you need to talk, if you need prayer about anything or need to talk about anything, we will be back there. Otherwise, why don't you stand and let's worship the Lord in song.